9. S of brass, oriental carpets, octagonal tables, such as the one which ornaments the initial letter of this chapter, hookahs, incense burners, and cushions furnish the apartment, while the lattice window is an excellent representation of the Mishrabijit, or lattice work, with which we are familiar, since so much has been imported by Egyptian travelers. In the upper panels of the lattice there are inserted pieces of colored glass, and, looking outwards towards the light, the effect is very pretty. The date of this room is 1756, which appears at the foot of an Arabic inscription, of which a translation is appended to the exhibit. It commences, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, and concludes, pray, therefore, to him morning and evening. Illustration, Governor's Palace, Manfalot showing a window of Arab lattice work, similar to that of the Damascus Room in the South Kensington Museum. A number of bosses and panels, detached from their original framework, are also to be seen, and are good specimens of Saracenic design. A bedstead, with inlay of ivory and numerous small squares of glass, under which are paper flowers, is also a good example of native work. The illustration on page 142 is of a carved wood door from Cairo considered by the South Kensington authorities to be of Syrian work. It shows the turn spindles, which the Arabs generally introduce into their ornamental woodwork, and the carving of the base of flowers is a good specimen of the kind. The date is about the 17th century. For those who would gain an extended knowledge of Saracenic or Arabian art industry, Lord Arabe, by Ann should be consulted. There will be found in this work many carefully prepared illustrations of the cushion seats. The projecting balconies of the lattice work already alluded to, of octagonal inlaid tables, and such other articles of furniture as were used by the Arabs. The South Kensington Handbook, Persian Art, by Major General Murdoch Smith, RE is also a very handy and useful work in a small compass. While discussing Saracenic or Arab furniture, it is worth noticing that our word, sofa, is of Arab derivation. The word, sofa, meaning, a couch or place for reclining before the door of eastern houses. In Skate's Dictionary the word is said to have first occurred in the, Guardian, in the year 1713, and the phrase is quoted from number 167 of that old periodical of the day, he leapt off from the sofa on which he sat. From the same source the word, Ottoman, which Webster defines as, a stuffed seat without a back, first used in Turkey, is obviously obtained and the modern low-seated upholsterer's chair of today is doubtless the development of a French adaptation of the eastern cushion or divan, this latter word having become applied to the seats which furnished the hall or council chamber in an eastern palace, although its original meaning was probably the council or court itself, or the hall in which such was held, thus do the habits and tastes of different nations act and react upon each other, western peoples have carried eastward their civilization and their fashions, influencing arts and industries, with their restless energy, and breaking up the crust of oriental apathy and indolence, and have brought back in return the ideas gained from an observation of the associations and accessories of eastern life, to adapt them to the requirements and refinements of European luxury. Illustration, Dual Armoire, designed by Lee Brun, formerly in the Hamilton Palace, collection and purchased Wertheimer for L12.075 the pair. Period, Louis XIV, Chapter VI, French Furniture, Palace of Versailles, Grand, and Petit Trianon, the three styles of Louis XIV, XV, and XVI, 
Colbert and Lebrun and Richard Boulle and his work carved and gilt furniture the Regency and its influence alteration in condition of French society Watteau, Lancret, and Boucher, Louis XV. Furniture, famous ebonists Bernice Martin Furniture Cafieri and Balvier Mountings Sevra Porcelain introduced into cabinets Gobelin's tapestry the Bureau du Roi, Louis XVI, and Marie Antoinette. The Queen's influence the painter's shorting and grew's more simple designs characteristic ornaments of Louis XVI. Furniture reasoners work Balvier's mounting specimens in the Louvre the Hamilton Palace sale French influence upon the design of furniture in other countries the Jones collection extract from the Times. There is something so distinct in the development of taste in furniture, marked out by the three styles to which the three monarchs have given the names of Louis Quatorze, Louis Kins, and Louis C's that it affords a fitting point for a new departure. This will be evident to anyone who will visit, first the Palace of Versailles, then the Grand Trianon, and afterwards the Petit Trianon. By the help of a few illustrations, such a visit in the order given would greatly interest anyone having a smattering of knowledge of the characteristic ornaments of these different periods. A careful examination would demonstrate how the one style gradually merged into that of its successor. Thus the massiveness and grandeur of the best Louis Quator's Mublaise Deluxe, became, in its later development, too ornate and effeminate, with an elaboration of enrichment, culminating in the Rococo style of Louiskins, then we find, in the Petit Trianon, and also in the Chateau of Fontainebleau, the purer taste of Marie Antoinette dominating the art productions of her time, which reached their zenith, with regard to furniture. In the production of such elegant and costly examples as have been preserved to us in the beautiful work table and secretaire sold some years since at the dispersion of the Hamilton Palace collection and in some other specimens, which may be seen in the Musée du Louvre, in the Jones collection in the South Kensington Museum, and in other public and private collections, of these several illustrations are given. We have to recollect that the reign of Louis XIV was the time of the artists Verain, Lebrun, and Later in the reign of Watteau, also of Henry Charles Boulle, Cecilia at Dorer du Roi, and of Colbert, that admirable minister of finance, who knew so well how to second his royal master's taste for grandeur and magnificence. The Palace of Versailles bears throughout the stamp and impress of the majesty of Lee Grand Monarch, and the rich architectural ornament of the interior, with molded, gilded, and painted ceilings required the furnishing to be carried to an extent which had never been attempted previously. Louis XIV had judgment in his taste, and he knew that, to carry out his ideas of a royal palace, he must not only select suitable artists capable of control, but he must centralize their efforts. In 1664 Colbert founded the Royal Academy of Painting, Architecture, and Sculpture, to which designs of furniture were admitted. The celebrated Gobelin's Tapestry Factory was also established, and it was here the kin collected together and suitably housed the different skilled producers of his furniture, placing them all under the control of his favorite artist, Lebrun, who was appointed director in 1667, the most remarkable furniture artist of this time, for surely he merits such title, was Henry Charles Boulle, of whom but little is known. He was born in 1642, and, therefore, was 25 years of age when Lebrun was appointed art director. He appears to have originated the method of ornamenting furniture which has since been associated with his name. This was to veneer his cabinets, pedestals, armoires, and coiners, clocks, and brackets with tortoise shell, 
into which a cutting of brass was laid, the latter being cut out from a design, in which were harmoniously arranged scrolls, vases of flowers, satyrs, animals, cupids, swags of fruit and draperies, fantastic compositions of a free renaissance character constituted the panels, to which bold scrolls in ormolu form fitting frames, while handsome moldings of the same material gave a finish to the extremities. These ormolu mountings were gilt by an old-fashioned process, which left upon the metal a thick deposit of gold, and were cunningly chiseled by the skillful hands of Cathiri or his contemporaries. Bull subsequently learned to economize labor by adopting a similar process to that used by the marquetry cutter, and by gluing together two sheets of brass, or white metal, and two of shell, and placing over them his design. He was then able to pierce the four layers by one cut of the handsaw, this gave four exact copies of the design. The same process would be repeated for the reverse side, if, as with an armoire or a large cabinet, two panels, one for each door, right and left, were required, and then, when the brass, or white metal cutting was fitted into the shell so that the joins were imperceptible, he would have to right and to left panels. These would be positive and negative, in the former pair the metal would represent the figured design with the shell as groundwork, and the latter would have the shell as a design, with a ground of metal. The terms positive and negative are the writers to explain the difference, but the technical terms are, first part, and, second part, or, dual, and, counter. The former would be selected for the best part of the cabinet, for instance, the panels of the front doors, while the latter would be used for the ends or sides. An illustration of this plan of using all four cuttings of one design occurs in the armoire number 1026 in the Jones collection, and in a great many other excellent specimens. The brass, or the white metal in the design, was then carefully and most artistically engraved, and the beauty of the engraving of Boole's finest productions is a great point of excellence, giving, as it does, a character to the design, and emphasizing its details. The mounting of the furniture in Ormolu of a rich and highly finished character, completed the design. The Musée du Louvre is rich in examples of Boulle's work, and there are some very good pieces in the Jones collection, at Hertford House, and at Windsor Castle. The illustration on page 144 is the representation of an armoire, which was, undoubtedly, executed by Boulle from a design by Laverne. It is one of a pair which was sold in 1882 at the Hamilton Palace sale, by Messrs. Christie, for L12.075, another small cabinet, in the same collection, realized L2.310, the pedestal cabinet illustrated on page 148, from the Jones collection, is very similar to the latter, and cost Mr. Jones L3.000, when specimens, of the genuineness of which there is no doubt, are offered for sale. They are sure to realize very high prices. The armoire in the Jones collection, already alluded to number 1026, of which there is an illustration, cost between L4.000 and L5.000, in some of the best of Boole's cabinets, as, for instance, in the Hamilton Palace armoire illustrated, the bronze gilt ornaments stand out in bold relief from the surface. In the Louvre there is one which has a figure of Lee Grand Monarch, clad in armor with a Roman toga, and wearing the full-bottomed wig of the time, which scarcely accords with the costume of a Roman general. The absurd combination which characterizes this affectation of the classic costume is also found in portraits of our George I.I. Illustration, Pedestal Cabinet, by Boole, formerly in Mr. Baring's collection, 
Purchased by Mr. Jones for L3.000, South Kensington Museum The Masks, Satyrs, and Ram's Heads, The Scrolls and the Foliage, are also very bold in specimens of this class of Boole's work, and the sun that island mask surrounded with rays of light is a very favorite ornament of this period. Boole had four sons and several pupils, and he may be said to have founded a school of decorative furniture, which has its votaries and imitators now as it had in his own time, the word one frequently finds misspelt, Buell, and this has come to represent any similar mode of decorations on furniture, no matter how meretricious or common it may be, later in the reign, as other influences were brought to bear upon the taste and fashion of the day, this style of furniture became more ornate and showy, instead of the natural color of the shell, either vermilion or gold leaf was placed underneath the transparent shell, the gilt mounts became less severe, and abounded with the curled endive ornament, which afterwards became thoroughly characteristic of the fashion of the succeeding reign, and the forms of the furniture itself conformed to a taste for a more free and flowing treatment, and it should be mentioned, in justice to Lebrun, that from the time of his death and the appointment of his successor, Mignard, a distinct decline in merit can be traced, contemporary with Boole's work, were the richly mounted tables, having slabs of Egyptian porphyry, or Florentine marble mosaic, and marquetry cabinets, with beautiful mountings of ormolu, or gilt bronze, commodes and screens were ornamented with Chinese lacquer, which had been imported by the Dutch and taken to Paris, after the French invasion of the Netherlands, about this time that island towards the end of the 17th century the resources of designers and makers of decorative furniture were reinforced by the introduction of glass in larger plates than had been possible previously. Mirrors of considerable size were first made in Venice, these were engraved with figures and scrolls, and mounted in richly carved and gilt wood frames, and soon afterwards manufactories of mirrors, and of glass, in larger plates than before, were set up in England near Battersea, and in France at Tour-la-Ville, near Paris. This novelty not only gave a new departure to the design of suitable frames in carved wood generally gilt, but also to that of dual work and marquetry. It also led to a greater variety of the design for cabinets, and from this time we may date the first appearance of the vitrine, or cabinet with glass panels in the doors and sides, for the display of smaller objets d'art. The chairs and sofas of the latter half of the reign of Louis Quatorz are exceedingly grand and rich. The suite of furniture for the state apartment of a prince or wealthy nobleman comprised a canopy, or sofa, and six fauteuils, or armchairs, the frames carved with much spirit, or with feeling, as it is technically termed, and richly gilt. The backs and seats were upholstered and covered with the already famous tapestry of Gobelins or Beauvais. Such a suite of furniture in bad condition and requiring careful and very expensive restoration, was sold at Christie's some time ago for about L1.400, and it is no exaggeration to say that a really perfect suite, with carving and gilding of the best, and the tapestry not too much worn, if offered for public competition, would probably realize between L3.000 and L4.000. In the appendix will be found the names of many artists in furniture of this time and in the Jones collection we have several very excellent specimens which can easily be referred to, and compared with others of the two succeeding reigns, whose furniture we are now going to consider, as an example of the difference in both outline and detail which took place in design. Let the reader notice the form of the Louis Quator's commode vignette for the initial letter of this chapter, 
and then turn to the lighter and more fanciful cabinets of somewhat similar shape which will be found illustrated in the Lewiskins section which follows this. In the Lewis Quator's cabinets the decorative effect, so far as the woodwork was concerned, was obtained first by the careful choice of suitable veneers, and then, by joining four pieces in a panel, so that the natural figure of the wood runs from the center, and then a banding of a darker wood forms a frame. An instance of this will also be found in the above-mentioned illustration. Lewis XV. When the old king died, at the ripe age of 77, the crown devolved on his great-grandson, then a child five years old, and therefore a regency became necessary, and this period of some eight years, until the death of Philip, Duke of Orleans, in 1723, when the king was declared to have attained his majority at the age of 13, is known as Le Pop de la Regence, and is a landmark in the history of furniture. There was a great change about this period of French history in the social condition of the upper classes in France. The pomp and extravagance of the late monarch had emptied the coffers of the noblesse, and in order to recruit their finances, marriages became common which a decade or two before that time would hardly have been thought possible. Nobles of ancient lineage married the daughters of bankers and speculators, in order to supply themselves with the means of following the extravagant fashions of the day, and we find the wives of ministers of departments of state using their influence and power for the purpose of making money by gambling in stocks, and accepting bribes for concessions and contracts. It was a time of corruption, extravagance, licentiousness, and intrigue, and although one might ask what bearing this has upon the history of furniture, a little reflection shows that the abandonment of the great state receptions of the late king, and the pompous and gorgeous entertainments of his time, gave way to a state of society in which the boudoir became of far more importance than the salon, in the artistic furnishing of a fashionable house, instead of the majestic grandeur of immense reception rooms and stately galleries, we have the elegance and prettiness of the boudoir, and as the reign of the young king advances, we find the structural enrichment of rooms more free and busy with redundant ornament, the curved and dyed decoration, so common in carved woodwork and in composition of this period, is seen everywhere, in the architraves, in the panel moldings, in the frame of an overdoer, in the design of a mirror frame, doves, wreaths, Arcadian fountains, flowing scrolls, cupids, and heads and busts of women terminating in foliage, are carved or molded in relief, on the walls, the doors, and the alcoved recesses of the reception rooms, either gilded or painted white, and pictures by Watteau, Lankrit, or Boucher, and their schools, are appropriate accompaniments, illustration, part of a salon, decorated in the Lewiskin style, showing the carved and gilt console table and mirror, with other enrichments, and suite, the furniture was made to agree with this decorative treatment, couches and easy chairs were designed in more sweeping curves and on a smaller scale, the woodwork wholly or partially gilt and upholstered, not only with the tapestry of gobelins or bobay, but with soft-colored silk brocades and brocatelles, light occasional chairs were enriched with mother-of-pearl or marquetry, screens were painted with love scenes and representations of ladies and gentlemen who look as if they passed their entire existence in the elaboration of their toilettes or the exchange of compliments, the stately cabinet is modified into the bomb-fronted commode the ends of which curve outwards with a graceful sweep, and the bureau is made in a much smaller size, more highly decorated with marquetry, and more fancifully mounted to suit the smaller and more effeminate apartment. The smaller and more elegant cabinets, 
called the Verdusher a little cabinet mounted on a table, the small round occasional table, called a garagon, the encoigner, or corner cabinet, the etagere, or ornamental hanging cabinet, with shelves, the threefold screen, with each leaf a different height, and with shape top, all date from this time, the chaise a porter, or sedan chair, on which so much work and taste were expended, became more ornate, so as to fall in with the prevailing fashion, marquetry became more fanciful, the Lewiskin's cabinets were inlaid, not only with natural woods, but with veneers stained in different tints, and landscapes, interiors, baskets of flowers, birds, trophies, emblems of all kinds, and quaint fanciful conceits are pressed into the service of marquetry decoration, the most famous artists in this decorative woodwork were a reasoner, David Rentgen generally spoken of as David, Pasquier, Carlin, Allen, and others, whose names will be found in a list in the appendix. Illustration, Louis XV. Carved and gilt, Fody, upholstered with Beauvais tapestry. Subject from La Fontaine's Fables. During the preceding reign the Chinese lacquerware then in use was imported from the East. The fashion for collecting which had grown ever since the Dutch had established a trade with China, and subsequently as the demand arose for smaller pieces of Mublais de Luxe. Collectors had these articles taken to pieces, and the slabs of lacquer mounted in panels to decorate the table, or cabinet, and to display the lacquer. Ebonists, too, prepared such parts of woodwork as were desired to be ornamented in this manner, and sent them to China to be coated with lacquer, a process which was then only known to the Chinese, but this delay and expense quickened the inventive genius of the European, and it was found that a preparation of gum and other ingredients applied again and again and each time carefully rubbed down, produced a surface which was almost as lustrous and suitable for decoration as the original article. A Dutchman named Huygens was the first successful inventor of this preparation, and, owing to the adroitness of his work, and of those who followed him and improved this process, one can only detect European lacquer from Chinese by trifling details in the costumes and foliage of decoration, not strictly oriental in character. Illustration, commode with panels of fine old lacquer and mountings by Cathiery, Jones Collection, S. Kensington Museum, period of Louis XV. About 1744 the Martin family had three manufactories of this peculiar and fashionable ware, which became known as Vernus Martin, or Martin's Varnish, and it is singular that one of these was in the district of Paris then and now known as Faubourg Saint Martin. By a special decree a monopoly was granted in 1744 to Sir Simon Etienne Martin the Younger, to manufacture all sorts of work in relief and in the style of Japan and China. This was to last for twenty years, and we shall see that in the latter part of the reign of Louis XV, and in that of his successor, the decoration was not confined to the imitation of Chinese and Japanese subjects, but the surface was painted in the style of the decorative artist of the day both in monochrome and in natural colors, such subjects as Cupid Awakening Venus, the Triumph of Galatea, Nymphs and Goddesses, Garden Scenes, and Fates Champatras, being represented in accordance with the taste of the period. It may be remarked in passing, that lacquer work was also made previous to this time in England. Several cabinets of old English lacquer are included in the Strawberry Hill Sale catalog, and they were richly mounted with ormolu, in the French style. This sale took place in 1842. George Robbins, so well known for his flowery descriptions, was the auctioneer. The introduction to the catalogue was written by Harrison Ainsworth. 
illustration, in parquetry with massive mountings of gilt bronze, probably by Cathiri, formerly in the Hamilton Palace Collection, purchased West Thines, L6.247 ICS, Lewis XV, period. The gilt bronze mountings of the furniture became less massive and much more elaborate, the curled and dive ornament was very much in vogue, the acanthus foliage followed the curves of the commode, busts and heads of women, cupids, satyrs terminating in foliage, suited the design and decoration of the more fanciful shapes, and Cathiri, who is the great master of this beautiful and highly ornate enrichment, introduced Chinese figures and dragons into his designs. The amount of spirit imparted into the chasing of this ormolu is simply marvelous it has never been equaled and could not be excelled. Time has now mellowed the color of the woodwork it adorns, and the tint of the gold with which it is overlaid. Improved by the lights and shadows caused by the high relief of the work and the consequent darkening of the parts more depressed while the more prominent ornaments have been rubbed bright from time to time, produces an effect which is exceedingly elegant and rich. One cannot wonder that connoisseurs are prepared to pay such large sums for genuine specimens, or that clever imitations are exceedingly costly to produce. Illustrations are given from some of the more notable examples of decorative furniture of this period, which were sold in 1882 at the celebrated Hamilton Palace sale, together with the sums they realized, also of specimens in the South Kensington Museum in the Jones Collection. We must also remember in considering the Mublais de Lux of this time, that in 1753 Louis XV, had made the Sèvres porcelain manufactory a state enterprise, and later, as that celebrated undertaking progressed, tables and cabinets were ornamented with plagues of the beautiful and choice paid tendra, the delicacy of which was admirably adapted to enrich the light and frivolous furnishing of the dainty boudoir of a Madame Dubarry or a Madame Pompadour. Another famous artist in the delicate bronze mountings of the day was Pierre Gauvier. He commenced work some years later than Cathiri, being born in 1740, and, like his senior fellow craftsman, did not confine his attention to furniture, but exercised his fertility of design, and his passion for detail, in mounting bowls and vases of jasper, of Sèvres and of oriental porcelain. The character of his work is less forcible than that of Cathiri and comes nearer to what we shall presently recognize as the Louis C's, or Marie Antoinette style, to which period his work more properly belongs, in careful finish of minute details. It more resembles the fine goldsmith's work of the Renaissance. Illustration, Bureau du Roi, made for Louis XV, by Reasoner, collection of, Mobilier National, from a pen and ink drawing by H. Evans, period, Louis XV. Gauvier was employed extensively by Madame Dubarry, and at her execution, in 1793, he lost the enormous balance of 756.000 francs which was due to him, but which debt the state repudiated, and the unfortunate man died in extreme poverty, the inmate of an almshouse. The designs of the celebrated tapestry of Gobelins and of Beauvais, used for the covering of the finest furniture of this time, also underwent a change, and, instead of the representation of the chase, with a bold and vigorous rendering, we find shepherds and shepherdesses, nymphs and satyrs, the illustrations of Lafontaine's fables, or renderings of Boucher's pictures, without doubt, the most important example of Mublais de looks of this reign is the famous, Bureau du Roi, made for Louis XV, in 1769, and which appears fully described in the inventory of the, Garde Mublais, in the year 1775, under number 2541. 
This description is very minute, and is fully quoted by Ann Williamson in his valuable work, Le Mublais d'Ardu Mobilier National, and occupies no less than 37 lines of printed matter. Its size is 5 and a half feet long and 3 feet deep, the lines are the perfection of grace and symmetry, the marquetry is in Reasoner's best manner, the mountings are magnificent reclining figures, foliage, laurel wreaths, and swags, chased with rare skill, the back of this famous bureau is as fully decorated as the front, it is signed, Reasoner, F.E. 1769, Alcide de Paris. Reasoner is said to have received the order for this bureau from the king in 1767. Upon the occasion of the marriage of this favorite court ebonist with the widow of his former master Ivan, its production therefore would seem to have taken about two years. This celebrated chef d'oeuvre was in the Tuileries in 1807, and was included in the inventory found in the cabinet of Napoleon I. It was moved by Napoleon III to the Palace of St. Cloud, and only saved from capture by the Germans by its removal to its present home in the Louvre, in August, 1870. It is said that it would probably realize, if offered for sale, between 15 and 20,000 pounds. A full-page illustration of this famous piece of furniture is given. A similar bureau is in the Hertford Wallace collection, which was made to the order of Stanislaus, King of Poland, a copy executed by Sweener, a very clever ebonist of the present day in Paris, at a cost of some 3,000 pounds, is in the same collection, Louis XVI, and Marie Antoinette. It is probable that for some little time previous to the death of Louis XV, the influence of the beautiful daughter of Maria Theresa on the fashions of the day was manifested in furniture and its accessories. We know that Marie Antoinette disliked the pomp and ceremony of court functions, and preferred a simpler way of living at the favorite farmhouse which was given to her husband as a residence on his marriage, four years before his accession to the throne, and here she delighted to mix with the bourgeois on the terrace at Versailles or, donning a simple dress of white muslin, would busy herself in the garden or dairy. There was, doubtless, something of the affectation of a woman spoiled by admiration. In thus playing the rustic, still, one can understand that the best French society, weary of the domination of the late king's mistresses, with their intrigues, their extravagances, and their creatures, looked forward, at the death of Louis, with hope and anticipation to the accession of his grandson and the beautiful young queen. Gradually, under the new regime, architecture became more simple, broken scrolls are replaced by straight lines, curves and arches only occur when justifiable, and columns and pilasters reappear in the ornamental facades of public buildings, interior decoration necessarily followed suit, instead of the curled and dyed scrolls enclosing the irregular panel, and the superabundant foliage in ornament, we have rectangular panels formed by simpler moldings, with broken corners having a pattern or rosette in each, and between the upright panels there is a pilaster of refined Renaissance design, in the oval medallions supported by cupids, is found a domestic scene by a Fragonard or a Chardin, and the portraits of innocent children by Grues replace the courting shepherds and mythological goddesses of Boucher and Lancret. Sculpture, too, becomes more refined and decorous in its representations, as with architecture, decoration, painting, and sculpture. So also with furniture, the designs became more simple, but were relieved from severity by the amount of ornament, which, except in some cases where it is over-elaborate, was properly subordinate to the design and did not control it. 
Mr. Hungerford Pollen attributes this revival of classic taste to the discoveries of ancient treasures in Herculaneum and 